Hey, thanks for listening to the Grace Church Sermon Podcast. For more information on Grace Church, visit us at gracemc.org. It's good to be with you. I, as you mentioned, I'm Ken, Ken Golding. Uh, actually, as he said, I'm with International Messengers, which is a mission organization that's headquartered in um, Clear Lake. And we, do, uh, we have staff around the world. One of the things we do is we send mission teams every summer, other times of the year as well. Um, I see one of my colleagues that went with me to Uganda. Doug is over there. If you have any interest, if you have any questions about short-term missions, about what we do, about opportunities, please grab me after the service. Be glad to talk with you more. Uh, This morning, we're going to talk about one of my favorite Old Testament Bible passages. We're going way back into 2 Kings chapter 5 today. And uh, I'm, I'm interested and exciting to see, I mean, I know what I'm going to say, but I'm still interested and exciting to be able to present God's word to you today. Um, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your goodness to us. We don't deserve anything from you. We don't deserve for you to give us your word. We don't deserve to have the Bible so that we can know you. This is your grace. This is your goodness to us, that we can know you. And what a privilege, what a pleasure. So Lord, I ask that you would speak through your word today, speak through this passage in 2 Kings chapter 5. I pray that through this, as we dig in, that we would come to know you just a little better, understand you better, hear from you, which we need. We need to hear from you, Lord. We are dependent on you. Thanks, God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't have, <clears throat> excuse me, I don't have the full scripture for this passage uh, on, the, on the slide, so I invite you, if you've got a Bible, if you've got uh, an app that has the Bible in it, that, um, that you go ahead and look up as well, 2 Kings chapter 5. I know we have, we've got differing levels of understanding of the Old Testament and Israel. Israelite history. So just a little bit of context. The years of King David and King Solomon, I think we've all heard of King David and King Solomon, it went roughly from 1000 BC to 920, about 80 years. Those were seen as the golden years of Israel's history. But immediately after Solomon's death, the nation deteriorated. It split into two nations, The north, the scripture is referred to as Israel, and the southern kingdom, the scripture refers to as Judah. And the northern kingdom of Israel quickly deteriorated into paganism, worship of other gods, and leaving aside Yahweh, the Lord, the true God. As time went on, the nation became more and more of just a mess. And that's the setting for our story today in 2 Kings. As we start in verse 1, we're introduced to this character who's not an Israelite. His name is Naaman. He's from Syria. 
Some of your uh, translations might see Aram, which is another name for Syria. Uh, He's from Syria, and he's described as the commander of the Syrian army. And Scripture says he was a great and honorable man in the eyes of his master, the king. And then it says, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. That's a curious thing. And there's some curious things in this chapter. We just don't have time to get into all of them. But that the Lord was working through this pagan Naaman to make Israel's enemy, Syria, uh, successful. Okay. So he's also described as a mighty man of valor. But he was a leper. He had leprosy, which might not be what we think of. This, this word leper, uh, it's used in the Old Testament, covered a variety of incurable skin diseases. But he had this disease of being a leper, and it was obviously a concern for him. Uh, the scripture goes on to tell us that Naaman's wife had a slave girl. She just happened to have a slave girl who had been captured on a raid from Israel. And this Israelite slave girl apparently had some affection for her master because she told uh, Naaman's wife, her master, that if Naaman would go to the prophet in Israel, that's this man named Elisha, if Naaman would go to him, he would cure him. So Naaman got this information. He went to his boss, the king. He told him. The king wrote him a letter of introduction to send him to the king of Israel. It would have been assumed that if there was a mighty prophet in a country, it would be, he would be in the employ of the king. So he writes this letter of introduction. This is something they did back in that day. The archaeologists have found other letters like this, where you send somebody to a, another nation, another king, with a letter of introduction saying, basically, please heal my servant from this leprosy. So Naaman goes to Israel, to the king of Israel, with the letter of introduction. But also it says he went with a lot of gold and silver. And if you were to calculate what it is, it's millions of dollars of gold and silver. And, and this always makes me giggle, 10 sets of clothing. So there's millions in gold and silver and 10 sets of clothing. So they must have had a different idea about clothing than we do. You know, we can run to Walmart and get 10 sets of clothing for a lot less than a million dollars. But that's what he took. He took with him these things as gifts for whoever could, was going to be able to heal him. But when he arrives there with the letter from the king of Syria, the king of Israel sees the letter that says, please heal my servant. He freaks out. How can I heal him? This is just, he's just trying to start a war with me. The king of Syria is just creating a pretense for him to have a war against me. Well, this prophet Elisha hears about the king of Israel's reaction, his freaking out, and he sends him the message that basically says, this is in verse 8, basically says, what is wrong with you? Send him to me so that he can know that there is a prophet in Israel, meaning a prophet of the living God, Yahweh. So Naaman goes to Elisha's house. And the scripture said he goes with his horses and his chariot. And so you can picture 
an entourage. He's an important man, and he's got his entourage with him, as well as the gold and silver and all the clothes. And he goes to Naaman's, he goes to Elisha's house, expecting Elisha to come out to him because he's an important person. But what does Elisha do? It says that Elisha sent a message to him saying, go dip in the Jordan River seven times. That was not what Naaman was expecting. The way I'm told, what I read, is the way the Hebrew is worded, he says something like, I expected him to come out to me. What is this? He says something like, um, not like, he says in verse 11 to 12, are not the Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? I don't know if you can hear the indignation in that, but basically he's saying, I just came from a place, our water's better than your water, your stupid Jordan River. He's upset, he's offended, he's insulted that this prophet won't even come to meet him. Not only that, he expected Elisha to come out and to call on the name of Yahweh and to wave his hands around and do something like this. This is probably what the prophets do, did in Syria or other pagan nations around. I don't, if you can go back to, I think it's 1 Kings 18, is that it? With Mount Carmel, Elijah on Mount Carmel, the prophets of Baal, what do they do to try and get Baal's attention? They're dancing around all day. They're shouting. They even start cutting themselves with their swords to get the attention. That's not what the prophet Elisha does. He doesn't even go see Naaman. He just sends a message to him. And so Naaman is upset, and he stomps off. But his servants, who must have had some respect for him, they said, Father, if he had told you to do some difficult thing, you would have done it. How much more this simple thing that he's, he's told you to do? It's like they're saying, come on, man, what have you got to lose? Why not? Why not try this? And so apparently that was convincing for Naaman. Naaman goes to the Jordan River. He dips himself in seven times. Verse 14 says, His skin was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. There's a couple of things for us to stop and dwell on before we go on in the story. One is the simplicity of the miracle. That's highlighted here. It wasn't about what Naaman could do. You know, he was expecting maybe Elisha to tell him, you got to do this and this and this and this. No, it wasn't anything like that. <clears throat> and it wasn't about what Elisha could do either. Obviously, Naaman was expecting Elisha to do these prophet-like things and get God's attention. Elisha does the exact opposite. Elisha doesn't want to draw attention to himself. He sends the man away from him, away to the Jordan River, where Elisha is not involved at all. This is about God's grace. And Elisha wants to make sure that Naaman sees that this is about God's doing. This is about God's power. This is about God's grace. All that Naaman has to do, yeah, get in the water, but really all that he has to do is trust. Do this simple thing. 
Doesn't that sound like salvation? That all that we need to do to be right with God is to trust in what he has already done for us. What he's done for us in sending Jesus to take our punishment to pay for our sins. What do we need to do? We need to trust in God. Trust in God for what he's done, that he takes away our sin, that he takes away the separation. You see, Naaman had an expectation, and when it comes to expectations with God, our expectations often become demands. He had an expectation of what God should do and how God should do it. You don't need to ask, answer, you don't need to raise your hand here, but I just wonder how many of us have never been disappointed with God? Okay, I see some hands. No, I've not, no, not me. I have been disappointed with God. What leads to our disappointment with God? I think it's that we have expectations of God. We expect Him to work in a certain way on our behalf. We even expect Him to do it in a certain way. We expect Him to do it at a certain time. And if He doesn't, wow, God failed. God didn't show up. God this or that. I know people. I know people. I know family members and others. That's, that's where they are. God didn't work the way that they expected him to. There's something some of you are familiar with called the Word of Faith movement. Uh, I don't want to go deep into that, but something about this that is not good, the main thing about it that's not good is that the way they, the way they portray God, the way God is portrayed, it's almost like a a cosmic or divine vending machine. We do this and God will do this for us. Now, definitely there are promises in Scripture. But God is never controlled by us. Yes, God is, he describes himself as a father. God is a loving father. God desires to bless you with more than you can imagine, but his blessing is on his terms. How he does it, what he does, when he does. He will not be controlled. We cannot demand that he work in a certain way. He is sovereign, and our role, as was Naaman's, is to trust him. So, that's a good story, isn't it? But it's not over yet. We look at verse 15... Naaman returns to Elisha. This time he gets to meet Elisha. He says to him, Indeed, verse 15, I know that there is no God in all the earth except in Israel. This is, this is amazing for a pagan. Not just, I know that Yahweh is the greatest God. No, I know there is no other God except Yahweh. And he tries to express his uh, Gratitude to Elisha by offering him the silver and the gold and the ten sets of clothing. Uh, and he urges him, but Elisha continually refuses. No, I'm not going to do that. No. Why? Because Elisha wanted to present God's grace as it is, as grace, as free, as not something we can bargain for, not something we can buy. 
So then Naaman has two requests, which I think kind of confirm the genuineness of his faith. First, he asks if he can take back two mule loads of Israelite dirt back with him to Syria, so that when he sacrifices, um, he'll do it on this Israelite dirt. He'll worship on this dirt. I don't think he, I don't know, we don't, we don't necessarily know. I don't think he necessarily thought there was magic in the Israelite dirt, but he wanted to have this, I think, physical connection with the people of God. He says in verse 17, For your servant will no longer offer burnt offering or sacrifice to other gods, but to the Lord. And if you're looking at your Bible and you see LORD in all caps, that's the how the English translations show the name Yahweh. This is the name, the covenant name that Yahweh had revealed himself to the Israelite people with, Yahweh. The second thing that, that he requested, he asked Elisha, he asked for pardon. Because as the king's right-hand man, the king's servant, the Syrian king's servant, he would need to go with him into the temple of Rimmon, the pagan, the pagan god. And basically, Elisha says, go in peace. He acknowledges. He acknowledges the genuineness of Naaman's faith. And he tells him to go in peace. The story of Naaman and the, the healing reminds me of, um, well, it reminds me of my wife, Kasha. She's not here today. She's sick. But she, uh, I don't know, maybe 25 years ago, she was a smoker. She, as she says, she had a nicotine addiction. And she had a friend, Robert, who would, who would offer to pray for her, to take, you know, pray for God to take away that addiction. And she was like, no, I like smoking. No. But then the time came when she was out of money, which means she didn't have money for cigarettes, which means she was hurting. And then she gave permission, I guess, to her friend, yes, would you pray for me? Pray for my nicotine addiction. And he did. And her desire was gone. And that's been at least 25 years, and she hasn't smoked since then. She was healed, I would say. She was healed, and then God did a bigger miracle. I think, you know, for us, nicotine addiction, chemical addiction, wow, that's tough. For God, that's, that's nothing. The bigger miracle was that through that miracle, through that power that he displayed, he drew Kasha's heart to himself. You know, we tend to think of, well, and God works this way as well, that someone puts their trust, they hear the gospel, they put their trust in Jesus, and then God does these things in their life. She does, he does that a lot. But in Kasha's case, he showed his power first, which opened her eyes and drew her to him. She had this desire for him. He, brought, he introduced himself in a very personal way and brought her into relationship with himself. Kasha had asked for a relatively small thing, and God had done much more. And that's similar with Naaman, I think. God had, he had asked God for a small thing, or Elisha for a small thing, to be healed of his leprosy, for God, that's no big deal. 
But the bigger thing is that he brought this pagan into a relationship of knowing the true God, the living God. And now that's a good story. But unfortunately, it's not the end of the story. If we go to verse 19, we read about Elisha's servant, Gehazi. Now, Gehazi had seen all that was going on, and he wasn't happy about the fact of this great thing that God had done. Not only did this Syrian get healed, but then he also came to faith in the Lord. What's to be unhappy with that? He says in verse 20, My master has spared Naaman this Syrian, and you should hear prejudice there, My master has spared Naaman this Syrian while not receiving from his hands what he brought. But as the Lord lives, I will run after him and take something from him. Prejudice, envy, greed. So Gehazi ran after Naaman. And it says that Naaman stopped. He climbed down to meet him, there's obviously a difference, just in these few words, a difference in his personality and his attitude. He is a humble man. He stops, he gets down, he asks if anything's wrong when Naaman comes to him. Naaman says, uh, everything's okay, but then he lied, and he said, two prophets showed up, and then he lied again in saying that, and Elisha has sent me to you to get some stuff, to get a talent of silver, which is about uh, 75 pounds, that's a large amount of silver, and two sets of clothing. And Naaman is happy to give him, he gives him twice that amount of silver, and he gives him two sets of clothing. Gehazi takes these things, takes them to his house, he hides them in his house, and then he goes to see Elisha. And Elisha asks him, where have you been? And, like a child, he says, nowhere. And Elisha responds, verse 27, Didn't I see you meet Naaman? Was this the time to be concerned about material things? Therefore, the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and to your descendants forever. So he went out from his presence, leprous, as white as snow. So that's an interesting story. It's an intriguing story. I really like this story. The question is, okay, what's this about? Why is this passage here? It's interesting. The story starts with a pagan leper who gets healed, and the story comes around, and it ends with an Israelite leper. Well, I think that part of the context, a significant context for this story, is in 1 Kings chapter 8. Now, uh, Kings was originally one book, 1 Kings and 2 Kings was one book, and it was written for the purpose, probably written while the Israelites were in exile, and it was written to explain how did we get here. It was written to show that the kings of Israel and the Israeli people had failed in following the Lord, and that's why they're in exile. So if we jump back to 1 Kings chapter 8, this is uh, in 1 Kings uh, 8, Solomon has built a temple. 
Right? He's finally, the temple is built to worship God in, and he offers this prayer to God in chapter 8. And I've got up here verses 41 to 43. Part of his prayer, he says, Moreover, concerning a foreigner who is not of your people Israel, but has come from a far country for your name's sake, for they will hear of your great name and your strong hand and your outstretched arm. When he comes and prays toward this temple, hear in heaven your dwelling place, and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you, that all peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you. Now, Naaman didn't come to the temple, but he did come to Israel because of Yahweh's prophet, because of the Lord's prophet. He had heard of the power of of Elisha. Let's drop down to verse 59 and 60 of chapter 8. And Solomon has finished his prayer, but after the prayer, he gives a blessing to the nation of Israel. He says, And may these words of mine, with which I have made supplication or request before the Lord... Be near the Lord our God day and night, that he may maintain the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel, as each day may require, that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God, there is no other. Doesn't that sound like Naaman? This pagan coming from where he was, he'd heard something and he came and he experienced the one true God. He experienced the blessing and the grace and the power of God. If we jump back to 2 Kings chapter 5, let's read the words of Naaman. In verse 15, he says, Indeed, now I know that there is no God in all the earth except in Israel. And verse 17, Your servant will no longer offer either burnt offering or sacrifice to other gods but to the Lord. God's heart was that the nations would know him through his people. God's heart was that the peoples of the earth would know him through his people. Well, what examples of his people, of the Israelites, what examples do we have in this story? Well, first we've got the slave girl, right? who just happened to be in Naaman's household, she knew the Lord had a prophet in Israel. And she just happened to be a slave of Naaman's wife, and she pointed Naaman, the Syrian, to the true God. And we've got Elisha. Elisha was this great prophet. Some of you are familiar, you've read all the stories of him. But it's interesting that in this chapter, he's a minor character, at least early on in the story. He's not meeting with people. He sends a message to the king of Israel. He sends the message out to to Naaman. He's not doing much. But what he does do is give a simple message to Naaman. A message that focuses on Yahweh, focuses on the Lord and on his power and on his grace so that Naaman will know that it is the Lord who is working. It is the Lord who is living and active. But there are two other examples of Israelites in this story. One of them is the king of Israel. You know, we think, from what I read, the commentaries, whatnot, we think it's King Jehoram, but we don't really know because he's not named. Even though he's a king, he's not named. He is not any more significant than the slave 
Not any more significant, yeah, than the slave girl who isn't named. What does he do? How does he represent God? Well, when Naaman comes to him, he doesn't even think of Yahweh or of his prophet. He just freaks out about what's happening. Then we've got the example of Gehazi. He lied, he was prejudiced, he was greedy. He was all those things, but you know what? His main sin was in misrepresenting Yahweh and his grace. Right? So Elisha, when all these things were offered to him, no. He didn't want to, he didn't want there to be any confusion for Naaman in giving and receiving. He wanted Naaman to know, no, this is grace. There is, with God, we have no control over him, and he is gracious. We don't earn it. We don't buy it. And Gehazi had maybe clouded that up by going, lying to Naaman and saying, yes, go ahead and give me these things. It seems like Naaman, the pagan Syrian, came to faith in the true God almost despite God's people. And this was God's heart, that all people of the earth would come to know him, would come to know him through his people. And that's still his heart today. I want to finish by looking at a passage from the New Testament, Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 to 16. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples and thereby speaking to us. He says, in verse 14, he says, You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. This is a message to those of us who belong to Jesus Christ. Our sins have been forgiven. We belong to God. He is our Father. I think it's significant here to see what he's not saying. He's not saying, Jesus is not saying, become the light of the world. He says, you are the light of the world. This is what God has done in your life and in your heart. This is how God has made you to be. You are the light. Verse 15. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Obviously, you don't light a lamp in order to cover it up, like the king of Israel and Gehazi did. The king of Israel, he hid the light of Yahweh by his unbelief and by his ignorance of the Lord. And of course, Gehazi hid the light of Yahweh by his prejudice and by his greed and by misrepresenting who God is. Are there ways that we hide the light of the living God? Are there ways that we hide the light that God has made us to be? Are there ways that we hide the great gift that we have been given, and not only that we have been given, but that we experience continually? The gift of forgiveness, the gift of redemption, the gift of connection with the living God. Are there ways that we hide that? We all have different what, personalities, different giftings, different education, different experience, etc., etc. 
But we all have the same, those of us who are followers of Jesus, we all have the same responsibility, or we could say privilege, which is to point to the living God, to point to Jesus Christ, our Savior, the Son of God, to make him known, to exalt him, to magnify him, whatever terms that we want to use. We have the privilege of sharing about God's great grace, about his love. <clears throat> Do we live... I was... I've got a question written here. I'm gonna I'm gonna read, but I was struck with it myself in the first in the first service. Do we do life with a readiness to share about the hope that we have? When you leave the house in the morning, you're going to work, you're going to school, you're going to somewhere else, are you ready? I would guess for most of us, and for me most of the time, I've got something on my mind that has not a whole lot to do with God, maybe. I'm going to watch this. I'm going to listen to this. Well, I'm going to watch where I'm going when I'm driving. I'm thinking about something at, at the office, or I'm thinking about something with my family, or, or whatever. And those are, you know, that's great things. But do we leave the house with a readiness, this is from what, 1 Peter 3.15, a readiness to share about the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. In other words, <clears throat> maybe we want, before we leave, before we leave our house, we want to ready ourselves. We want to remind ourselves of what God has done in our life, who God is to us. You know, God has given many different metaphors of what he's like in Scripture. One that has been particularly significant for me lately that I keep going back to is that he is a rock because there's so much that's unsteady, unsteady in the world, but also unsteady in my own life from time to time. He is a rock. And just to remind myself of that before I go out to face the world, or however we say that, remind yourself of who God is for you, what God has done. Remind yourself of the hope, the hope of spending eternity with the one who loves us, and also the hope of what he is doing, what he might do through us, how he might use us. Kasha and I talk about <clears throat> things like being introverts and extroverts, and she will describe herself, she's not here so I can talk about it, she'll describe herself as an extreme introvert. And I'm, I'm an introvert too, and so it's kind of, I guess, God's sense of humor that he has us as missionaries, and we're up in front of people, and sharing and talking and whatnot. But I wanted to ask a question for our introverts, it's a challenge, and for our extroverts here. As introverts, do we avoid opportunities to engage with people? Well, I'm an introvert, so blah, 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 blah. Uh, God wants to work through us introverts. As extroverts, do we miss opportunities to engage because we're focused on ourselves and our own stuff? Now, those of us who are followers of Jesus, we all know and we believe this, that the Lord's heart is, this is quoting from 1 Kings 8, that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God, there is no other. 
Matthew 5, 16. Jesus says to us, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Just a minute, I'm going to pray for us and then we'll be dismissed. Before I pray, a couple of things to mention. One is, we've, we've looked at this story and we've seen this great God who introduced himself in a very powerful way to Naaman, this pagan. And we've talked about God's grace. But if for you, if you're like, I hear these words, I don't know God that way. I don't have this personal relationship with him that you talked about with your wife, Kasha, and how God brought him, brought her into a relationship. I don't know that. I don't have that. If that's you, and if you would like, I would love to talk with you. I'll be here after the service as long as it takes. would love to chat with you more about that. The other thing before I pray is, part of what I'm going to pray is that God would show us if there are ways that we are hiding that light. Not just us as a body, but for each of us, each of you, me, are we hiding that light that God has not just put in us, but he's made us to be. He says we are the light. Jesus says we are the light. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, maybe sometimes it it feels to us like a burden to be light, to represent the living God, to represent Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who came to earth to rescue us from the kingdom of darkness and bring us into freedom and light. It is, I guess it is an awesome thing. But what a privilege also, Lord, that you give us, that this is your way of spreading the truth about you in this world, at least one major way, is through your people. Lord, I pray for us, us who know you, that you would point out if there's ways that we are hiding the light. Hiding the identity that you've given us as light. Or that you would, by your Holy Spirit, you would point to us a way, a way in each of our situations and our unique circumstances, a way that we can shine. Thank you, God. Thank you that you care about us. Those who know you and those who don't know you yet, thank you that your heart is toward us, that you are a good father. I pray for my brothers and sisters and any who don't know you who are here that you would lead us as we go out that you would speak to us, draw us nearer to you, help us to know you better. We love you, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.